Welcome to the Recognizing the Self-Medicated Patient episode, which is part of the Podcast Plus series. Frustrated patients and weary providers, the pandemic's impact on the care we provide. The Podcast Plus series allows you, the learner, an opportunity to learn more about today's subject by participating in a WebEx discussion group, a journaling club, and an electronic journaling session. Look for more information about those sessions in the show notes. In today's episode, we are joined by Dr. Melissa Backtambura and Cindy Teagle. Before we turn things over, let's go over some important CME announcements. This episode has been accredited for AMA PRA Category 1 credits. For detailed accreditation and designation information, please visit the show notes. This information can also be found on our website, www.centera.com forward slash physician education, as well as reaching us by email at physicianeducation at centera.com. Now here are Melissa and Cindy. Hi, my name is Melissa Backtambureau. I'm the director of Optima EAP, and I've been asked to connect with our team and provide information for the podcast regarding patients that are self-medicating. So with me today is Cindy Teagle. She's one of the EAP clinicians. She's also a substance abuse professional, or SAP for for short, um, who's also on the EAP team, and we're going to discuss uh, the topic of self-medicating patients. So the goals of our of our session today are to educate physicians how to recognize signs and symptoms of patients who are self-medicating using mood-altering substances, to raise awareness to resistance to screening due to limited resources, and to offer resources and screening tools and suggestions to improve clinical outcomes. So in order to achieve these goals, our objectives are to review red flags for signs and symptoms of self-medication, identify barriers to engaging patients on substance use disorder assessment, and identifying local and national resources to support substance use disorder. So before we get started, let me do a brief introduction of myself and and Cindy to kind of set the stage so you know where we're coming from and what our background is on on this topic. Again, I'm Dr. Melissa Backtam, Bureau Director of Optima EAP. I have over 30 years of work in the employee assistance field, and I'm a practicing social worker. I'm talking today with Cindy Teagle, who's a social worker as well, a certified employee assistance professional and a substance abuse professional. Cindy's been an LCSW for 10 years, a certified employee assistance professional since June 2008, and an EAP counselor since 2006, and has 36 years of recovery from alcoholism. She's also worked as a substance abuse counselor for over seven years at a community service board. So, Cindy, what you know, we're just going to have a, an, an open discussion here. So, you know, we've all experienced over the past 20 months the stress that's been created with the ever-changing situation from the COVID pandemic, along, you know, in tandem with that, the, the societal upheaval, economic challenges, changing school arrangements for kids, you know, lack of quote-unquote normal coping resources, and it's created a really unique situation for care providers across the spectrum. You know, just today, I know that we're reaching peak numbers in terms of pandemic, people seeking resources and support at the emergency rooms and inpatient admissions for, for COVID. So as, you know, it's gone up and down, and, you know, right now we're in another peak with no current end in sight which is challenging everybody, you know, clients, patients, as well as practitioners along the way. Many times we hear patients talking about being stressed in ways they've never experienced before. 
and that their usual kind of go-to methods for self-care aren't available. Things like, you know, going to the gym or, or going to church or hanging out with friends or, you know, going to clubs, et cetera. You know, things have been restricted in terms of, you know, whether they're open or whether you can meet in person or group size, all of that. And we've all experienced it. And so we know that pain whether physical or emotional, is a driver for patients to seek remedies to alleviate it. You know, whether people are in physical pain, you know, they've got a bad knee and it hurts and so they need, they're looking for a way to stop that pain, or it's emotional pain, you know, unresolved issues or unresolved traumas or, or you know, depression that just won't go away. They're, they're seeking a way to alleviate the pain. And when our regular methods no longer work, oftentimes people will turn to whatever does work in order to reduce their pain. You know, compounding this is the real impact of med the medical staffing crisis, you know, broken mental health systems, that two to three month wait times for new patients to be able to see a psychiatrist for a med evaluation or several weeks to even to begin, uh, you know, verbal counseling with a, with a counselor. So I've gathered some questions regarding substance use in general and then specifically self-medicating behavior, Cindy, that I want to kind of chat with you about. Since we know substance use disorder has a major impact on health outcomes, you know, it's really important to at least assess and get some kind of baseline for how patients are using medications. So if we can, let's start with the basics. You know, how do you define substances? Well, thank you, Melissa, for inviting me to join today. This is Cindy Teagle. For substances, I the, it's something that we use to that impacts affects our mind and change the way that we think and feel. They usually affect the levels of neurotransmitters in the brain and are capable of changing one's emotional state. So, and they can be anything from alcohol, illegal drugs, or actually a prescribed medication that's taken uh, uh, as not as directed. Okay, so essentially at any substance that somebody's using to relieve their pain. Exactly. Okay. And a lot of it for me is to feel differently. I think a lot, that's the motivating factor. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what kind of screening tools or assessments can a physician use to be aware about a patient's substance use in general? There are some wonderful screening tools and uh, SAMHSA has developed, which is the Substance Abuse and Mental Health uh, Services Administration, federal. Um, it's called ESPERT, Screening, Brief Intervention, and Referral for Treatment. And if they have a wonderful site where you can get their assessing tools. Why like what we use at the EAP is the CAGE, which is a four-question mm -hmm. assessing tool. And if they score yes on any of the four questions, then that's a red flag to do an intervention or to speak about it and provide referrals. Cindy, do you know what the four questions are that are on the cage? That sounds like a real simple tool to use. Yes, I do. Uh, question number one is, in the past month, have you felt you ought to cut down on your drinking or drug use? The second question is, have you ever felt annoyed by people criticizing your drinking or drug use? Number three is, have you felt guilty about your drinking or drug use? And the fourth question is, have you ever needed a drink or drug to get going in the morning? So those are the four questions for the cage. Yeah, that's that's great. I mean, those are four very simple questions that then, you know, can lead to, you know, further investigation or, or assessment of what how, you know, what really the impact might be for somebody. So that's great. And we'll make sure that there's a, a reference to that in our in our supportive materials. 
so, so for, uh, you know, a physician, when a patient presents either to a physician in, in an ED or on a regular office visit, what kind of red flags should they be aware of to look for to, to tease out if a patient is self-medicating? Well, a lot of it, I think, is chronic conditions, like high blood pressure, that sort of thing. People's dilated, pinned, red eyes, excessive perspiration, poor hygiene, memory loss, confusion, mood swings are a few to mention. Interesting. I mean, it sounds like th- those might be kind of present with a lot of different medical situations as well. It, you know, so what are, is there anything else that would give uh, a, a physician an indicator that you know what they can you know put the pieces of the puzzle together? Well, if we turn towards med-seeking clients, and they're the ones with the, to look for that a lot of times are coming in for opiate painkillers, uh, for medications for ADHD or ADD, mm-hmm. Vyvanse, Adderall, that sort of thing. Now, these guys, there's quite a few things to pay attention to for them. And one of it is, some of it is the obsessive impatient from the client, the numerous calls, they uh, don't keep follow-up appointments. Mm-hmm. Then they call for an immediate appointment. There's excessive flattery, um, a pushed, um, they push the issues if the doctor is hesitant. They give a almost a diagnostic copy of what's in the manuals for whatever um, they're they're presenting for so almost like um, they've done their homework they know they know what how to present so that they can paint the picture that they really do need to get the prescription exactly right right so if you know somebody does want to you know the expert or the cage and it comes back positive what do they do then at that point, they they are recommending a brief intervention and then to provide referrals for treatment. What does that mean, a brief intervention? And that's just taking the time. Sometimes if you get on their link, which I can give you now and we can put in the back, it's M-A-S-B-I-R-T dot org. Mm-hmm. They, if they flag what the initial uh, cage or audit, then they'll give you a, a larger or a more detailed assessment tool to use. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then, then you just speak with them and find out where they are and then give possible referrals for treatment, for substance abuse treatment. I know some of the Sentara practices are including social workers now that can also be in the office that also provide the referrals. Mm-hmm. So Cindy, when a physician has in, you know, in their assessment that, you know, the red flags, they've used either the expert or the cage or some assessment tool or, you know, just their basic skills at assessing. And they've got some suspicions that the person, the, their patient is seeking meds for self-medication. Can we talk about the differences between patients that are seeking prescription drugs versus those that are using alcohol or other drugs to, to medicate? Yes, and there there are clearly two different types of patients. Uh-huh. The the med seeking folks, they're determined for their outcome. So they are totally focused on why they're there and what they're trying to get. Uh-huh. Where the alcohol abuse patient um is really what the CBERT, the screening and brief intervention referral, mm-hmm. works the best for. And these with the questioning, it's going to be the beginning of the addiction and that this actually 
75 to 85% of the folks are going to test negative with the testing, mm-hmm. which is wonderful. And then 15 to 25% will need full screenings or brief interventions. So that group, you're going to be seeing the high blood pressure, the red nose, you're going to see different signs and symptoms. The drug-seeking folks, they, and a lot of physicians will ask for If they say that their meds were stolen, they'll say, we need a police report. If they say that they were diagnosed with ADD or ADHD previously, they're going to want to see their records for that. Mm -hmm. So a little bit of the differences. So I guess that kind of the the list that you had spoken about earlier regarding, you know, patients being very flattering to the physician and, you know, coming with the almost the, you know, out of diagnostic handbook for what the symptoms are to present with, they really are, you know, that behavior is different than somebody who is using alcohol, which is, uh, you know, readily available to anybody to, to ease their pain. So the physician needs to be able to distinguish between the two. Mm-hmm. That and the other. Um, and they also suggest with that, that the doctor obtain a thorough history of the presenting illness, look for consistencies in the exams, the conducting the appropriate tests and prescribing non-pharmaceutical treatments. Mm-hmm. And it's always, they say, proceed cautiously, because I think doctors are going to know, um, and then what do they do with them? How do now, they let, me, let me ask, so, uh, you know, and, and I don't know if there's really a lot of literature on this at this point, but with the recent loosening of laws around marijuana or THC to be able to, to treat, are there, you know, what can physicians, what kind of red flags might might physicians look for with a patient who's self-medicating you know, whatever disorder. And and oftentimes in my practice, I see this around um, anxiety and stress that that people are are self-medicating with marijuana. What might they look for in patients that are doing that? Well, a lot of times it would be self-disclosure, but also I guess the number one symptom of marijuana, chronic marijuana use is the amotivational syndrome, Mm -hmm. which means that they're kind of spinning their wheels. It's like that commercial with the the son saying, uh, the mom coming home and the son's upstairs. And she says, honey, did you find a job today? And they pan up and he's like 50 years old. So the. <laughs> the so I haven't seen that commercial, but that, that kind of sounds like some of the patients I'm seeing in my private practice. So, yeah, <laughs> exactly. So they, right. they don't usually achieve if they're chronic. Okay. So one of the things that we talked about in setting up the objectives for our discussion today was limited resources. And I wanted to spend some time talking about that because when you and I were getting ready for this discussion, one of the things that you brought up was, you know, when, what, what do you do when you do, somebody does screen positive. And, And so can we talk a little bit about, you know, some of the hesitancy around going down this path when we know that resources are limited? Do you have any suggestions for what physicians might do? Well, number one, I think that can help because there is such a delay with uh, finding services, Mm -hmm. especially for the substance abuse population and psychiatric um, appointments, Mm -hmm. is um, recommend and get the lists for the uh, self-care, the self-help, the AA. Okay. Yeah. Marijuana is anonymous. There's also Narcotics Anonymous, and that would be a good resource for them. They also have hotlines. And they have local hotlines for AA where they can give them contact information for face-to-face meetings as well as virtual meetings. I'm on the peninsula and we're very, very limited with outpatient substance abuse providers. I know of three in the area and it's very, very hard to get in. So I would strongly recommend AA and NA and MA to the 
employees, patients. As as a starting place or, or in addition to a referral to a treatment, a more formalized treatment program? I think as both. Okay. So they can start there because they can get in immediately and then this will hold them over or help them until they can get into treatment or to outpatient treatment. Okay. Can you talk a little bit about the spectrum of treatment that's out there? I just want to make sure that while we're on the topic of treatment that folks know that it is a spectrum and there's all kinds of different resources available. Okay. That's a very good question, Melissa. Thank you. Um, number one, and I've had to refer this for some of my substance abuse professional clients, the DOT drivers, is AA, the self-help. In some areas, there's no treatment available. So this mm-hmm. is what we have had to use. And people can achieve and maintain sobriety on on being involved in the AA meetings with the sponsor, going to meetings, having a home group. Mm-hmm. The next level is your outpatient counseling. And this mm-hmm. will usually start, it's an hour, hour and a half a week. And it's usually 12 to 16 weeks for the outpatient. Now, if someone relapses, which is very common while they're in treatment, then a lot of times they'll push that up to two hour to an hour and a half sessions a week. Okay. And sometimes put them in relapse prevention. Now, if someone could still, if this isn't enough to get them, help them to maintain their sobriety, they have the IOP, which is the intensive outpatient. Mm Mm-hmm. And that ranges, SAMHSA says it should be three hours, three times a week. Some practices are doing two hours, three times a week. It includes a family component and also most require attendance in AA or other self-help groups. And then if people can't maintain their sobriety on that, then there's also residential Mm-hmm. substance abuse treatment. And that uh, usually is a 28-day program. We're finding more and more insurance companies are covering that again. There was a, a time that they weren't, but now mm-hmm. they're picking that back up after care component to that. that was, that's what I was going to ask about. Like after somebody completes the residential piece, what, what's the, you know, how do they maintain once once they come back out? So I think the aftercare piece in my experience is um, whether it's outpatient, you know, IOP or inpatient, the aftercare piece is what's so instrumental in helping people maintain their sobriety. That's helpful because I think people need to know, even though the resources have are few and far between, um, it's important that people understand what is out there. Do you have any information about in in conversations that you have with other with medical professionals, what feedback have you gotten? Are people reluctant to screen or are they reluctant to go down this path to assess for substance use disorder because of lack of resources? I actually spoke to my PCP and we've he, I've been a patient of his for over 30 years. So we've like we've developed a relationship, it feels like. And his main complaint, I would say, is the lack of referral sources. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard for him. He also is doing his own medication management with 80% of his um, opiate addicted folks that come in. Mm -hmm. So, and he's been, he says, you know, he's been in the business for 30 years and he's good with screening and he understands and he's helped to wean people down, but he was frustrated with the lack of availability of the psychiatric and substance abuse. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That, that's a challenge across the board. And I know it's something that that's of interest especially now with the pandemic, you know, taking a look at at behavioral health resources in general. What else? Well, I mean, what else do you think that physicians need to know about self-medicating patients or anything else you would like to leave our listeners with? Well, 
as we spoke earlier, I was very surprised that fentanyl does not test positive on the opiate screening. Hmm. So this would be a way, because I know a lot of doctors, if there are prescribing psychotropic or other pain meds, they do urine drug screens on their patients to ensure they're not abusing other substances. So they could be abusing the fentanyl and it would not show up. Can can you explain what that is, what fentanyl is and, and how somebody gets it? And you know, because we hear so much about deaths related to fentanyl. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, I know it's a synthetic opiate painkiller, and a lot of people are getting it on the street. Well, people will get scripts, prescriptions, and then sell them on the street. And it has become very prevalent. Mm-hmm. And our opiate deaths are higher than ever. Right. The CDC, over 100,000 people died of drug overdoses in the United States in a, the last 12 months period ending April 2021, which was wow. a 29% increase from the previous year, wow. nearly doubling over the past five years. Which is, you know, speaks to the need for people or physicians being able to screen for this when patients are presenting with and, and some red flag comes up. If something's not right or, you know, there, there's a sense that, well, actually, scratch that. I would say that it speaks to the need for doing a, a, an assessment for everybody who walks in the door. Mm-hmm. Because really, I mean, you can ask the questions and, you know, like with any disorder, people are going to answer. You can only help those who are going to be honest with their answers. If part of what I'm hoping to be able to provide during this discussion is some things to look for, uh, like if a, if your antennas are going up, if there's a red flag <laughs> raised or somebody's story is just not making sense, taking the time to dig a little bit deeper and find out what is going on or pushing back and asking questions about, you know, I, you know, I wrote a prescription for you or you were here two weeks ago and now you're asking for the same thing. How is it that you've used the medication up already? And, you know, those are, they're not easy conversations to have. No, they're not. But I think it's so important. Right. Any, uh, you know, this is what you're, you're an expert in this, Cindy. Any tips or guidance for practitioners to how to have that conversation? Well, once again, I'm going to refer back to the CBERT, the Screening Brief Intervention and Referral for treatment to their site. And they actually have questions that the doctors can use to ask clients to dig down farther and to assess deeper. And because you're on our staff and I know you, I know that you've got an assertive and questioning personality and you're not afraid to ask the tough questions and that you're You've got a warm enough presence where once if, you know, when somebody answers them, you respond to them respectfully and, you know, you help you educate them about, you know, what's going on or what the problems is or what the challenge is with their use and helping them find a different way to feel better rather than relying on substances for that. So I think, you know, part of the challenge is, is being able to, again, I think it's like you said, too, is taking time to do it. I know that with emergency rooms being overwhelmed and swamped and, you know, the the number of people seeking care, it's sometimes time is the most valuable entity that we have. And we also know that if we don't address these issues, the outcomes, clinical outcomes are not going to be as effective as they could be if somebody is self-medicating in order to alleviate pain one way or the other. Briefly, you mentioned the ADD, ADHD, and, and Ativan. Is, is there anything more specific about that disorder or how people might self-medicate around that disorder? It's actually funny that a lot of people in AA have been self-medicating with Adderall and Vyvanse to lose weight and have energy. So it's, yes. And so it's a prevalent with 
that population, and I'm sure other women, it's usually women that are seeking that and know what to say when they go into the doctor. So with that, one of my friends tried to get it from what I understand. And the doctor said, well, we need to see your records that you have this diagnosis. Okay. And so that's, that's when we push back and say, um, you need to be tested. We need to have this assessment and diagnosis. Well, that to, to me, that's good news because what I hear is that the physician is following the protocol and not just, you know, writing a script for, and I'm quoting from the Rolling Stones, you know, mother's little helper, but you need to really have some background and some, you know, documentation to support the fact that you need seeking the prescription is really founded on a specific diagnosis versus somebody's verbal account of what's going on with them. So, I mean, that actually is a pretty good story where it sounds like the system is working well there. So Cindy, as we've talked about this topic, you know, can you share any ethical concerns or or situations that kind of have presented themselves or ethical challenges that you've been faced with for people who are self-medicating? I think the saddest situation for me is the patient that was injured in an accident of some sort and that they have chronic pain. Mm -hmm. And then the our bodies develop a tolerance to the painkillers. And so they need more and more. And I think this is tough because a lot of times doctors are cognizant of and sometimes think they're misusing it where they've just really developed the tolerance. Right. And so these folks sometimes will end up purchasing opiates on the streets. Right. And I know this is, this is an odd remark, but the AA people that are alcoholics appear to have already a tolerance for painkillers. So that population, even in recovery, would probably need more than the average person if prescribed. And I don't know if that people are aware. Right. Interesting. And definitely something to be th- to you know consider when writing the prescription. So, all right. Do, do, it, it, would you like to add anything else before we wrap up our conversation? No, I think I'm good. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you for joining us. And be on the lookout for the next episode of the Podcast Plus series. As a reminder, read today's show notes for the link to register for this topic's WebEx discussion group, journal club, and electronic journaling sessions, as well as claiming your continuing education credits. Well, that's it for now, but we'll be back soon with another episode of Vital Signs, a podcast for Sentara providers, the podcast that provides evidence-based education programs for physicians and healthcare providers on the go.